Looking at adult weekend of W. Alton Jones Camp of May 19, 1972. Presents a series of classes by Brother Harry Tennant, entitled A New Way of Looking at First Principles. The subject of his fourth class is In Christ. What we talked about yesterday, in very simple form, was the existence of God, and that we said in fact, that he was from everlasting and to everlasting. And then we said that God created the earth. We said that God made man of the dust of the ground and that the Lord made man upright, but that he sought out many inventions and by his sin he became inclined to death. and that finally he would die. And that all that he was was then, as it were, just contained in that, that circle, and that there was no way of escape for man out of this. But this inclination to death was also an inclination to sin. Then we tried to find <clears throat> some way out because we then discovered that all the human race were equally inclined to death and to sin. And that all the promises of God, if they were to mean anything, were, must be designed to release man from that situation. He couldn't do it in himself, he couldn't pick himself up in a bucket, there was nothing he could do. However good he was, he'd still die. And that was just man. And man unaided would certainly sin and die. And all his children, however long they lived, they too would die. Then we came to the Lord Jesus Christ and we puzzled for a time whether to draw him like that or like that. And uh, we were torn in our thinking to begin with because that's how we wanted to regard him. And then we came finally to the conclusion that that's how he was. He was from his brethren. He was like unto his brethren. He shared their mortality. He shared their temptations. He was tempted in all points like as they are, though without sin. And we discovered that his uprightness was achieved against his nature and that he became the upright one he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And so that was the situation at which we arrived. We did discover, however, that in order to achieve this, God had intervened, and that the word, all the promises of God that God had made in the Old Testament, for that's the Old Testament time, all the promises of God were made flesh in Jesus. And that whereas Adam had disobeyed God's word, Jesus kept it and became the word made flesh in a double sense. First of all by his birth and secondly by his living. The word of God was made flesh by Jesus. It is my meat and drink to do the will of him that sent me. We then came across the dilemma in our thinking that this Jesus died. And that we seem to have the very situation there in Jesus that we had there in Adam, as in Adam all die. 
And then we sat down for ourselves, just a very simple thought, which I'll very slightly alter this morning so that it makes better sense in a short time, because that's the situation in Adam, in fact, it might just be easier to do that. It isn't really. I think it's better to have man there, but I'll do it just, just to illustrate. And then I'll do this. <coughs> and that was the situation we arrived at by that diagram and that diagram. And one can see right away that uh, there's a great problem involved in that. Because it looks as though whether you're Adam and sin, you die. And that we could understand because in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the wages of sin is death. And that was a just punishment of God. For God couldn't have an eternal sinner. It would have been a contradiction of his own nature, which is eternal righteousness. But then when Jesus came, he died, but was righteous. And therefore, how could death have a righteous hold over Jesus? And then we looked at Acts chapter 2, where we read that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and whom by wicked hands they had crucified and slain whom God hath raised from the dead, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And so we discovered, in fact, that the equation on this side was not complete until we've got death plus resurrection. And then we looked at this very carefully, and going back to Adam here, we noticed that, in fact, that was a very real thing. That what Adam brought about was really death, as in Adam all die. Now, I'd like you to just make a note of this point, because I didn't bring it out in detail yesterday, but the reason for death was spiritual. It was not just physical. The physical was the result. The spiritual was the cause. The reason for resurrection was spiritual. That's it. And that is what brought Christ out of the grave. But the point I wanted to make very clearly, that as surely as Adam took everybody into the grave, as rarely as Adam took everybody into the grave, that the grave opened her mouth to take man in, so rarely did the grave open her mouth to let Christ out. It was real. This is why he saw no corruption. It wasn't just that God thought three days was all right, this Holy One of God saw no corruption. He couldn't see corruption. If he'd seen corruption of any kind, then the righteousness of God in Christ would not have been fulfilled. So that's how we arrived yesterday. Now, it's the connection between that and that. That's what we are by birth. 
how do we arrive in this situation to be related with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the point, isn't it? Because that's what the atonement is all about. And whereas we can see ourselves there, how do we find ourselves transferred from that and put into this situation? And it's about that that I wanted to talk for a moment this morning. It's very beautiful. It's perfectly real. And there's a process which is described, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, if you'd like to have a look. Ephesians chapter 1. Where Paul has in mind the Garden of Eden. It's not immediately clear that he's got it in mind. But do you think what Eve said when she was in the garden, or what it says about her when she was in the garden, that when she saw that the tree was a thing that was pleasant for the eyes and the thing to be desired to make one wise, that she took thereof and did eat, and gave unto her husband also, and he did eat. Then if you look at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see the link. Wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, if you just reflect on those words, you'll see that Paul is right back in the Garden of Eden. You think, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Eve wanted to eat, that she may, may, might be like unto God, knowing good and evil. And when she ate, her eyes were opened, and so her husband and they knew that they were naked, right? Now notice, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. It's right out of Genesis that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us wards who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Now, there's something exaggerated about that language unless we understand what he's talking about. There was no exceeding great and mighty power in bringing Jesus out of the grave. I mean, to us it's a, it's a, a, a mighty power, but all sorts of people have been raised from the dead. Jesus had brought Lazarus from the dead. The widow of Nain's son had been raised from the dead. Peter had raised Dorcas from the dead later on. This wasn't said to be an exceeding great and mighty power. Now, there's obviously something involved in that. 
Now the exceeding great and mighty power in raising Jesus from the dead is that God has now abrogated this law, which is the law of sin and death. And the exceeding great and mighty power that's been exercised is that now, whereas in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And the exceeding great and mighty power that God has made manifest in Christ is that he's broken the terrible chain that stretched right from Adam, right along through all mankind, straight along, broken it. He has burst the bonds of death. That's it. And that's the exceeding great and mighty power. And it wasn't just in coming out of the grave. It was in that. That's the mighty power of God in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which made manifest to us is in the um, forgiveness of sins. I don't know whether you've noticed that. It's in, it's in uh, what Moses has to say in the Old Testament. If I were to ask you what is the power of God, what Moses regarded as the power of God, what would you say? You know, what... what? Precisely. This is the power of God. Now you just have a look. I think it's in Numbers chapter 14. I'm just speaking from memory now. I dealt with this point, I remember, when I spoke on Moses over here some while ago. But Moses had had the vision in Exodus chapter 34, you remember, of God, where the Lord, the Lord God, <coughs> merciful and gracious, abundant in goodness and truth, and forgiving iniquity, you remember. And that was the vision that had passed before Moses. And now the children of Israel had been, had been rebellious against God again. And in this 14th chapter of Numbers, all the purpose of God seemed to be falling to pieces in a people that were crying to go back to Egypt and were forgetting their God and being rebellious against him. And then Moses hears God in verse 11 say, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them and make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And then Moses, in a, in a most beautiful, and this shows his mind, in a most beautiful meditation, prayer, and intercession before God, unfolds before God what God had done in Moses' mind. A response out of Moses. God knew right away that he wasn't going to disinherit them. But it wasn't until Moses had interceded that Moses was refashioned. Right? Now here it is, verse 17. Well, let's just go in at uh, verse 13. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to all the inhabitants of the land. For they have heard that thou, art, that thou Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by day in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then all the nations which have heard of the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord is not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them. Therefore, he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now, I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great. According as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. And that's the power of God. Take a look at it. That Old Testament teaching about the power of God, the forgiveness of sins, is God, God's mighty power. And you and I thought it was miracles just falling from the fingers of Jesus. Why, God can make miracles any time of day or night, by the million. He's doing it all the time. There's birth taking place all over the world. There's death taking place. There's transformation. All the stars are held in their places, in their courses. There's timing, the migration of birds, the movement of tides. All this taking place. He creates the wonder of the eye or the heart of the hand, of the mind. All these are miracles, but they're nothing compared with that miracle. The mighty power of God. And the power of God is to forgive sins. And there is the dynamite. There lies the means of the forgiveness of sins in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to 1 Peter 2, you'll see the link between Jesus and ourselves. 1 Peter 2. There are various uh, scriptures that speak of the atonement, not very many as a matter of fact in any detail, and Romans chapter 3 is probably the greatest, and the letter to the Hebrews is perhaps the most continuous record of the atonement, but there's just here in 1 Peter 2 a brief yet very telling picture of the work of Jesus. Verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that he should follow his steps. Who did no sin. Eleven letters. That's all. And whether you're educated or uneducated, there's no word longer than one syllable, no word longer than three letters. And that's the exceeding great and mighty power of God. That's it. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Who did no sin? That's it. Write it up in your, in your mind. That's Jesus. So when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And now, who, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. And that is the key to the understanding of what's drawn here on the board. Notice, if we drawn the Lord Jesus Christ upright, then he would not have had our sins in his body. You say, how did he have our sins in his body? Because we're all, 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 right back to Adam, linked together, not merely in mortality, because that would have been insufficient. And this is the great proof, as a matter of fact, that the Lord Jesus Christ had within his body the motions of sin. Now, by that I mean that they were not fulfilled, but what's in Romans chapter 7? I find then a law in my members. This law that's against the law of God in my members. There it is. We're born with it. When good comes, we immediately oppose it. It's, it's the positive, the negative, every time. Now the Lord Jesus Christ had that in his members. And he took it and broke it. 
and it's our sin because it's common to all of us what Adam did in the beginning and made all of us mortal and inclined to sin. The Lord Jesus Christ has now taken in himself and broken that power. He took away the sin of the world. He went back to square one. And Philippians chapter 2 says, He thought it not a thing to be grasped at to be equal with God, like Eve in the garden, who wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. He went right back, straight back to the garden. And in the midst of the garden, in Gethsemane, he restored the glory to God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I have glorified thy name upon earth. That's it. And in that, in that body, the Lord Jesus Christ was victorious. But, and this is the point in the link with Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ is conscious as he does this of the sin of everybody and makes intercession. In other words, in this this moment he makes confession that everybody who had ever lived had sinned against God. More than that, if you if you work this out, you'll notice that by living uprightly, Jesus Christ condemned the crooked without a word. You know, you know it's uh, it, it, it sometimes said that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't condemn sinners. He didn't need to. He was the condemnation of sin. This is what Peter said. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus hadn't said a word to Peter. But Peter knew when he was with Jesus. The whole time, the righteousness of God in Christ was a condemnation of all that had gone before. He condemned sin in the flesh, in himself, and in every, every other creature. He was the living contradiction of Adam. Right? This is what is meant by living it out. He lived out the atonement in what he did. And therefore, of course, by doing this, he condemned all of us. By being upright, he condemned David and Abraham and Noah and Enoch and Adam. They were condemned by his righteousness. Now, the release that comes by this is that when he does this, he doesn't do it merely to condemn, but to restore then restored I that which I took not away, he says, in prophetic form in the Old Testament. And what Adam had taken from God, Jesus gave back to him. Adam stole the world from God. He took the earth out of God's hand by his sin. And all the world fell short of God's glory. And Jesus restored it. And the whole earth should be filled with my glory. That's the picture that lies here in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now your sins and mine, if you look at First Peter 2, 
are clearing up. We've seen there in verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. By taking his body up to the tree, in which were the motions of sin by birth, the Lord Jesus Christ nailed it to immobility, so that the body from which our sins come was now rendered completely immobile on the tree, so that there was in figure now carried out that which the Lord Jesus Christ had been doing in his mind the whole time. He took, now if you've got a revised version margin, you'll notice something about this. Because what the Lord Jesus Christ felt about what he had, you notice what he said, and it's, it's that translation in Hebrews that helps. It says, a body hast thou prepared me. Right? Couldn't be done without a body. Impossible. Because the sin had taken place in a body, in the beginning. And it was in a body that it was worked out. When we went to the beginning, there was nothing else but Adam. No immortal soul. It was here. Here it was. All of it in this body. Now, as Adam had wrought folly in the body, now Jesus brings righteousness within it. And to do that, he has to bring, finally, and to nail to the tree. And it's interesting that it's to the tree, because it was that's where the motions of sin began, at that first tree. This is where they end. And temptation is put to death in the death of Jesus. And all that there was of the motions of sin were rejected, that no flesh should glorify glory itself in God's, pres in God's presence. That's the picture. Now, First Peter 2 says, and this is the revised <coughs> version margin, for who his own self bear our sins in his own body. And have you noticed that the words are still short and there's not one more than four letters long? To make it absolutely certain you can understand it, whatever one's education, the revised version margin says, who his own self carried up our sins in his own body on the tree, as though when he did it, he carried up the sin of the whole world and lifted it up and nailed it to death there. That's the picture. That's how Jesus saw it. Adam didn't see all the generations right on that would suffer because of his sin, but Jesus saw the whole world rebellious against his father. He saw the kingdom of God had been taken out of God's hands by Adam's sin. And Jesus is going to restore it by overthrowing the king that reigns over God's kingdom, sin. And so he makes confession that the whole world lies in wickedness, John's first epistle, and makes confession of all the sins of the world in himself, that in that common flesh which he bore, the world had rebelled against God. But in that one unique body, sin was brought to a halt. Sin was bound in chains. Sin was condemned to death and sin, by being nailed to the tree, died. That's the lesson in First Peter 2. And Jesus is bound up in this. Now come to Romans chapter 6. You'll see how it's um, developed there. Romans 
This is what is meant by he hath made him to be made to be sin for us who knew no sin. It isn't that he was made a sin offering for us. There's no justification for that in any case in the Greek that lies behind this, so we're told. But quite apart from that, that's missing the point. He wasn't just an offering for sin. There's sin and there's the offering, right? This is a whole folly about substitution. He dies for me, like this. That's Jesus, that's me. Now, the doctrine of substitution means he did for me something I could have done for myself. That is a doctrine of substitution. Otherwise, he's not a substitute. If he doesn't do something you could do for yourself, then he doesn't substitute for you. A speaker who substitutes for another speaker carries out what the other speaker would have done. But Jesus did something which I couldn't do for myself. He offered to God in his body a victory that I had never achieved. But in doing it, he looked like a sinner. And there was that tremendously true jibe that the scribes and Pharisees and elders leveled against Jesus when they had him nailed to the tree. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. And that was mighty true. In fact, if he'd tried to save himself, we'd all have been lost. He looked not every man on the things of others, on the things of himself, but on the things of others, is Philippians chapter 2. Now Romans 6. And this brings us to the in Christ part, does it not? Chapter 5 has shown the condemnation that lies in Adam. Just cast your eye over it, then you've got the context of chapter 6. See the, see the end of verse 15. Then as it goes into verse 16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment by, was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. By the way, it might I make just a comment on uh, some of these chapters, particularly Romans and Hebrews, they're extremely difficult to read, to read intelligently, and uh, I don't know what your practice is at home. My parents brought me up, and they were very ordinarily educated parents that I had. In fact, I suppose if it hadn't been for the Bible, you would have said in many ways that they were uneducated. But when my mother read the Bible, and it didn't matter where she read from, whether it was from, whether it was from Genesis to Revelation, when she read the Bible, she never made a mistake. And she never got the sense wrong. And this was purely my practice. And uh, both in Britain, and I suppose it's over here, I don't feel that there is enough of careful, simple reading aloud of the Bible. We've lost it. Now it's all blared at us from other places. This is the end of side one. We now turn it over to side two with the class already in progress. On a Sunday evening, properly read, a sequence of them, not as long or, or perhaps as uh, elusive as the ones we had last evening, where you had to know what it was about in a way to be able to take it along with it. 
but uh, you could do that. Now, uh, practice this matter of reading. I'm sure this is uh, something we should do. And you can't read Romans. You can't read Romans unless you practice. And I, I find this with young brethren in Britain from time to time, and I suppose it's just the same over here. They're called out to read on a Sunday morning, and that's it. And now they're going to start. Romans chapter 5. Now they haven't prepared before they came, they haven't read it at home, they're not used to reading aloud, and the consequence is that you just make a complete hash of the reading. You can't get the sense of reading without careful practice. Read aloud. You know, this is, uh, this is the, uh, the art. It's the sense, as with Ezra and Nehemiah in that marvelous time when they read together at the Feast of Tabernacles. Romans chapter 5 is a perfect example. Once you start to read Romans 5 without practice, you're in very serious trouble. 16 then, for not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now there it is, and that's the setting of Romans chapter 5. How is Romans chapter 6? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, might I show this in the diagram? This is easy to miss, and yet it's a, it's a, a very straightforward thing. I'll do it in a large scale for you, and then perhaps understand it a little better. We've seen how we're caught up in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, how his body was like ours, except that his was one in which sin was victorious, and so we break bread and remember his flesh and forget ours, in which there is nothing but condemnation. Now, here is Jesus, right? We'll just take a, a very large-scale one. By birth, that's his character there, right? That's his death. 
That's his resurrection. And that's how he is now, like his father, going on forever. Romans 6 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We are buried with him in baptism. Now follow this. We go back here and look at Adam. Right? He's still there. There's nobody in that grave. Everybody who goes in that grave comes out. Know ye not that so many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so ye also should walk in newness of life. So the man who buries himself with Jesus is raised to a new life. As in Adam all die, you're dead in trespasses and sins, and there's no way out. So in Jesus, by baptism into him, there is a release from our sins. Right? Now, look, there's no, there is no um, way in which this now is unrelated, because what a man now does is to bring himself to this, this point. And what Jesus asks us to do is stand alongside his cross, his tree, and as soon as we do, we recognize our own shape and our own sin, and he says, crucify it. Right? And you remember, it's the serpent that's crucified, that is there. So that's our rejection of our sin, of the motions of sin within us, and it's crucified with him. As that was a spiritual act that brought death, so our spiritual act of faith is our self-condemnation. We are buried with him by our own act and will of faith. And by doing that, because we have crucified ourselves with him in making confession of our sins, by baptism now into Christ, we enter not into Adam's death, for as in Adam all die, but into Christ's death. And even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And we now share his resurrection. Now share it in this life. We shall share it in the future, but we now share it. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even we also should walk in newness of life. And we are now in Christ, in a new dispensation altogether. We have now renounced what we were and we have taken to ourselves by faith, by the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins and that the real change in our sins are left behind. Sin, look at it, Romans chapter 6, notice the words, they're there for our benefit. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man, our old man is crucified with him. The wise version was crucified with him. It's done. It was completed. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. 
For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. That's clear. There's another word in the next verse. For in that he died, he died unto sin. Isn't that interesting? He died unto sin. What's that mean? He died unto the consequences of sin. All the consequences of sin that there were in Adam had worked themselves out in Christ. And they were ended when he died. In the same way that all the curses of the law were ended when he died. And sin had no more power. That power which this man had released into the world by his first sin and had gone along and taken every man born in Adam's line. That power of sin which had operated right through producing real sin in everybody and real death in everybody now came to a halt in Jesus where the real sin was not fulfilled but the real death was and in that death was released from this and in that death and resurrection, a new line was started, which is Christ. A line of life forevermore. And those who wish to transfer from that grave to that grave have to be baptized. And that's what he's saying here in Romans chapter 6. Know, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. But in that he died, he died unto sin once. Once for all is the Greek there. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the word reckon that's there, because we're going to be different from Jesus. I know <clears throat> I've had people talk to me from time to time who would like to be baptized again. Now I don't think that's a foreign thought. And they're not now talking about... Uh, They've learned some new doctrine at all. It's not that. They don't think that they've suddenly discovered a new doctrine. What they have discovered is what a state they were in when they were in Adam. And as they've got to know the Lord Jesus Christ more, they'd only like to go back to the day of their baptism and make a fuller confession than they'd ever made before. And you've all been in that state, haven't we? If only we could take back what we now feel about ourselves and really make confession at the day of our baptism. There's no need. Do you know, there's only one who knew what your state really was, and he made confession. You think you know now what your plight is. You and I will not know until we're at the gates of the kingdom. Then shall we know, even as we are known, that's going to be the moment. Then we shall know what redemption is. And all our pettiness and our, quarrel, our quarreling, our gossip and our spite and our backbiting, and all our moat finding and beam finding, all our looking squint-eyed at our brethren and poking our fingers and prodding, our fault finding, our whitewashing of ourselves will all be stripped away. And we shan't be saying, Lord, have a look at him. 
the Lord will say, have a look at you. And then will come the confession. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that's what begins in baptism. And it's going on all the time. When we've had our baptism, we sin again afterwards. We don't keep this perfectly straight line of righteousness here. That's eternal life in a way. We don't keep that line of righteousness. We, we go along and we find ourselves doing this. This is our experience, isn't it? Sometimes right down when everyone's going to come up again. And then we sort of come up. This is our life. These sins, if we confess them, are forgiven in that. That's where the forgiveness lies. He hasn't called us to himself because we are perfect, but because he is. It's his perfection we are resting on the whole time. Well, uh, I hope that part was helpful about, about being in Christ. Now look, if you're a young person and you're not baptized, well, you come along gradually in knowledge to this point. And I'm not putting pressure on anybody who hasn't yet come to an understanding of what it is to be in Christ. But if you have come to an understanding and you haven't been baptized, then just make a very careful note that that's where you are. And if you're content with that, well, remember it. That's where you are. However clever, occupied, satisfied you now are, that's where you'll be in the end. That's where God sees you already, dead in trespasses and sins and your little moth-like mayfly existence, in all its brilliance, in the sunshine, just for a fleeting glimpse of time. There's nothing before God. That's how he sees you. But if you're in Christ, he sees you like that. He doesn't see you like that. Christ, our righteousness. If we lean on him, that's how we're seen before God. Well, I just want to conclude what I've got to say. Uh, this, by the way, I find, I think, the most satisfying, inexhaustible aspect of the gospel I've ever, ever studied. I find it, I hope you'll find exactly the same, that as you begin to read your readings in Old and New Testament, you'll find this will open out in every possible direction. You get all sorts of thrills. You suddenly say, ah, you'll fix something to this or to that, or to the straight line, or to God. And you'll see it all fitting into place. Every, every one of the doctrines. Here they all are. There's a doctrine of sin and death. Here's the earth to be filled with God's glory, if it's going to be filled with his glory. Here are all the promises made that must have resurrection in them, as they were for Abraham, as they were for David, as they are for all of us. Here's the doctrine of baptism. Here's the doctrine of the word made flesh. Here's the doctrine of the atonement. Every one of them, all here, you find all, all the doctrines are all here. You can't dispose of, of baptism. You know, sometimes people say, well, perhaps some, not all the doctrines are essential. Well, you pick out the one that isn't, and you've gone along. You know, there's no need to worry about thinking about Adam. Just start here with Christ. Well, try it. Try to leave out this. You've got no explanation for that or for this at all. And so with all the doctrines, you'll find they all beautifully interlink. There's one final one. We started at the beginning with the creation of God. Here it was, remember. Now just come and see a very beautiful sequence of thought that uh, begins in our Old Testament. 
I'd like you to come first of all uh, to Ephesians, uh, Isaiah chapter 55. The Word made flesh. You remember this sequence of thought that begins in Isaiah chapter 40 and goes right through the prophecies of the servant of God, Jesus. And the cry of God, listen to the word. That's it. Listen to the word and the word made flesh. Verse 3, incline your ear, come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And so there comes Jesus in verse 4 and in verse 5. And the cry, the call to us to repent in verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then here's the gentle work of the word of God. Not some cataclysmic work, but a gentle process in Jesus. The rain that cometh down and the snow from heaven. And returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. You remember the word in the beginning? By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Now imagine that that wasn't wasn't just the creation that God had in mind, but the greater creation. And when he spoke in the beginning, his word was going out to perform a far greater purpose. You might think this is um, an impossibility, as it were, than just to cast out the stars across the, the heavens and produce this fangled, jeweled glory that lies there. And this earth with all its myriad wonders in it. So that great thing was what God was doing in Genesis chapter 1. But he had something greater. Isaiah chapter 51. And it's Jesus. God's purpose. The call of Abraham. Of Sarah in verse 2. And the work of God in verse 3. For the Lord shall comfort Zion and will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her deserts like the garden of the Lord. Paradise restored. Here it is. How is it going to be done? Verse 5, my righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people, and the isles shall wait upon me, and mine arm upon mine arms shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, and there's the earth and God's old creation being taken up to the moth-eaten garment and 
taken off and cast away and all the old earth and heavens, not the literal physical, but that which man has made upon God's creation, taken away and cast on one side and God says, now look again. But my salvation should be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. And we say, how, Lord? How? And he says, listen, while I speak to my son, verse 16, and I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heaven and lay the foundation of the earth and say unto Zion, thou art my people, a new creation. And Christ, the creator, this is Colossians chapter 1 that we discussed yesterday, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness in Second Peter chapter 3. And here is Jesus performing this mighty task, chapter 45 and verse 8. Just see the, the sequence of thoughts that lie here. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it, and here's the new creation. As in the beginning, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So he formed the new man out of the dust of the ground brought him forth out of his tomb and gave him the breath of eternal, of everlasting, immortal existence. A new creation in Christ Jesus, the first Adam of the new creation, the second Adam, taking this one as a sequence here that lies in Christ Jesus. How was it done? The Lord dropped down righteousness from heaven and the earth opened. Just can I find a psalm where that is? It's about 85, I think. Just uh, get the verse there. Beautifully set out. Yes, it is 85. Here's the prayer of the people. Verse 7. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God, the Lord, will speak. That's the word, the word made flesh. God will speak. It's taken up by Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he speaks to Cornelius. The word that God sent by Jesus Christ, preaching peace. He is Lord of all. That's it. Well, here it is. He will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now notice, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. These are the cherubim of God, as it were, overlooking the mercy seat. The mercy and the truth, the righteousness and the peace, they go together. They're all part of the name of God, as it were. No peace without righteousness. And yet God's mercy rests on his truth. And there they are together. His word and his truth together. And there, that most beautiful picture of the, of the ark in that most holy place, set there with its crown of gold and its solid goldness resting on the tabernacle of God. And inside, the tables of stone. Inside the written word of God. So the word and the mercy seat and God. No mercy seat, condemnation. For no man can keep the commandments of God. The mercy seat lying in between, the Lord looks down through mercy upon us. For mercy rejoices against judgment. And brethren and sisters, we're, we're as blind as bats and moles. We look at our brethren every time through the word. 
and we take away the mercy seat. It's just how we work with, we commonly behave, one with another. Want to criticize somebody? Let's nail him down. Here it is, look. The whistle is from above, it's first pure, and that's not you. All right? That's, that's nailed a lot of us. And we, and that is how we start. Most beautifully, most beautifully stated in, uh, this month's Christadelphian. You know, pure doctrine. That's us. Pure doctrine. Maybe it's us, it's not the Bible. It isn't the Bible expression. Interesting, isn't it? It isn't pure doctrine, it's sound doctrine. Alright? Health-giving doctrine. If it's just sheer purity we're after, sheer purity in some abstract form, and this is how we seek it when we look for it in the abstract form, pure doctrine, we've got it distilled and redistilled and redistilled, and there it is, the quintessence of doctrine. And we hold it out against our brethren and put them all to death. That's the way. But sound doctrine is health-giving doctrine. It's still pure in the true sense of the word, but it's such as to give life. And so contest about doctrine that destroys is always anti-scriptural. Now, there may be those who want to have impure doctrine. All right? That's unhealthy doctrine. We still have to have the kind of doctrine that's true without departing from principles, but we've got to look at it through soundness, wholesomeness, instead of purity. And there's a, uh, there's a, a, a line there that's helpful. Anyway, read the article by Alfred Nichols. I found it uh, most helpful. But there it is, this first 10 here. Have you noticed what happens in verse 11 then? Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. And it's the resurrection of Jesus. Have a look. That perfect picture of mercy and truth are met together and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What a beautiful picture. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Perfect meeting in Jesus, who is the mercy and truth of God, who is the righteousness and peace of God. Here he is. And God called him out of the ground. As he called the first Adam and formed him of the dust of the ground, so he called his son the second time. My son and truth sprang out of the earth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Brethren and sisters, the doctrines we have been given by God are wholesome, sound doctrines. Are they not? You know, it's only when you begin to go through them, not as doctrines to teach someone else, but as doctrines to live in oneself, that their beauty comes out. Where are we going to be, brothers and sisters, at the end? You and I. That's where we began. And there was no soundness in us. And we were all dead men. Like the Assyrian army outside Jerusalem. All 185,000 of us. And we never could get in by our own power and our own strength. 
And the Lord came along and said, Open up the gates that the righteous nature nation may enter in that keepeth truth. And he who rode alone on the ass, which never man had ridden upon, who mastered sin and came to the city to live and to die, brought all of us to Jerusalem. And that's where in our rebirth we stand. Until we just conclude with that thought in Psalm 84. Just link two psalms together, 84 and 87, and you'll finish there. All the curses of Adam on the ground and in ourselves are all taken away in Christ. We who've been longing to get near to God are brought near in Psalm 84. And there we are. Verse 4. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them. You thought you were going to be lost. That God has forgotten you. That you were too small for God to think about or care for. He who cares for dead men might have forgotten one of his children. He'd forgotten Isaiah chapter 40 which said and he bringeth out the stars and he calleth them all by name. Not one of them is missing. They all appear, every one of them, in Zion before God. Psalm 87, verse 5, and it, of Zion it shall be said, this and that man was born in her and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people. This man was born there. And that's how he went back to, brothers and sisters, at our baptism, or where you, young man, young woman, are still to come. You begin by going to the beginning. Come, let us go to Bethlehem and see that thing which is done there. And you end by going to Jerusalem and to Calvary to see the great and dreadful thing that was done there. And to go to the tomb and to hear the voice saying, He is risen, he's not here. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And we come to it and make our confession. And we lie down with him in that new tomb wherein never man was laid except Jesus. And we are buried with him in baptism. And then the Lord rose away the great stone of our sins. And out we come to newness of life, for the angels of God on either side are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. And we walk with Jesus, or with Mary Magdalene, and hear him speaking to us. Mary. And we respond to him with that joy of acceptance.